point upon a point upon a point, and then at the end draw your conclusion, then you're safer in coming to sound interpretation, correct? I mean, otherwise what happens is you can just take a, your first brush through something and try to draw a conclusion based off something that is triggered in your mind and it becomes an emotional attachment and maybe you come to a wrong interpretation. So withhold your, your full judgment until you get all your facts out before you. <clears throat> Always remembering the, the full context, which is why when we began the book of Hebrews, we started by setting context. So tell me contextually what is going on here. Let's just put a list over here about our context. We don't know the author, right? But we do know who he's writing to. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the Hebrews. A Hebrew audience. Okay, immature. Immature in faith. And I'm going to put on there possibly. Because there's probably some who are not, obviously. And since the possibility is there that some are immature and some are not is an important quality to keep in mind. Because the address that he makes to them sometimes is he's correcting at some points, as we've seen. There are some points in here where he actually challenges them to examine themselves, right? And in my perspective, it could be one of two ways taken. Um, I see the first few chapters being that which lays down the entrance into the faith. Please enter in is the plea here. It's the heavenly calling to enter in, right? And this calling has been around since time immemorial. You go back all the way to Adam and Eve, and there was a call by God. He gave them a promise of a seed one day. He, we see it in Abraham when he gives them a promise about a seed that's going to come. We see in the New Testament that seed is Jesus himself. We see in Galatians where God tells him that God gave him the gospel beforehand, correct? So we see that, that the, the audience here, uh, or I mean the subject matter here, to me is salvation, Entering into salvation. Now, that salvation has various qualities to it and various applications because of the three verb tenses of salvation, which we really see him bounce around in this particular book in already. We see him talk about entering into it, which is justification. We, we see him say, therefore, you can confidently approach the throne of grace and that if, in fact, you are a partaker of Christ, then you will remain, which is what? Sanctification. Sanctification. And, he sa and he speaks often of the world to come and that one day Jesus is coming back. When God again brings the firstborn into the world, that is speaking about what? Our day of glorification, when God comes back to rule and reign and on into eternity. That eternity of glorification actually has two qualities to it. The first one is the thousand-year reign. The second one is the what? New heaven and new earth. All, both of those are considered glorification, okay? All right, so with, with that in mind, the idea of an immature faith, that there's possibly immaturity, that's assuming they are in, that they are actually believers. Later, we're going to get into that where we're going to talk about immature faith and discipline, Right? Of, the, of a believer. 
That's going to be covered later on. It's one of the subject matters in here. But what is the subject matter that we're looking at at this point? The rest of God. That they are, they're, it's a calling, a heavenly calling to enter into rest, into God's rest. Correct? And how do you, and so uh, knowing that, then we're talking about, if we're talking about here, discipline of a believer, what are we talking about here? Faith or salvation, right? So that's a subject matter that comes up. Here is the, the discipline of a believer. Here is the faith walker that is entered by salvation. Okay, so those are a couple of points. Yes? Okay. It appears that they are that there's that the the old system is a central message. Right? And when we look at the old system, what is it contrasted with that's better than the new covenant? Better is Jesus and the new covenant. Okay, so it's an old system, and in this case, this old system specifically is the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, we definitely see later also this, the subject of persecution. And what's interesting about persecution, when you, when you actually have done other studies in the past, what have you seen about persecution? What, what does persecution do to a person, an individual, concerning a faith walk? It should strengthen it. If it strengthen, and if it strengthens it, according to chapter 3, it says, if you are God's house, what? You will what? You will remain. So even though persecution comes, you still remain, right? But if you're not actually a believer and persecution comes, what happens? They fall away. And so I think this is exactly what is going on in these first four chapters, okay? He's talking about the, the, the need to evaluate your life to see where you truly are in your, in your relationship with God. Have you made this transition into the better covenant and if so, are you, are you actually in this God's, God's rest, this faith salvation? And if you are, are you being obedient in it? Are you being obedient? Okay. All right. So that kind of gives us a little bit of background again about who they are and kind of what's going on. The, the, these are Hebrew-minded people. We do need to always keep in mind that he is speaking to uh, them at a time in history when the church is brand new. And therefore, this is a transitional time for these people, which is convoluting, isn't it? Do you remember when we did the study in the book of Acts, and there were a couple of passages in there that it took us a while to figure it out, but pretty soon we went, oh, I get it. It's because they're in this transitional time. 
They've not quite made the full transition from the old into the new. And so there were some little things, caveats that are mentioned. You know, I remember in the beginning they cast lots, for instance, to select the new, the, the new apostle that will take the place of Judas, right? That's an Old Testament practice, which we don't do in the new anymore. Because now, instead of relying on the casting of lots, what do we rely on in the new covenant? That, the leading of the Holy Spirit, exactly. All right, so cool beans. Everybody's got it good there. So now let's go and do step number one that you should do if you're trying to discern what is being spoken of when it speaks about the, the rest of God. So the rest of God, by definition, in chapter 3, verse 1, go there first and tell me what you see. What is he saying there? Okay, so he says to them, you are partakers of a... So when he speaks about the heavenly calling, if you follow it on down, when he speaks about the heavenly calling, what is the calling? What does he want them to do? Okay, be, enter into rest, because that's the subject matter that comes up, correct? He says, so it's a calling. Um, he gives some information about, the, about the, the contrast between the old calling and the new. Now... We can go back to chapter 1, actually, and clarify what, what he's doing here in these verses 2, 3, and 4, 5, actually um, 2 through 6. You can actually parallel it with the verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews 1. Go back to Hebrews 1 with me. And what does he say there? What did God do long ago? Okay, so previously God spoke through the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in, in many ways. But now what has he done? Now he's spoken to us in his son, right? Uh, whom he appointed as heir over all things, through whom also he made the world. So he goes on then and gives more in, insight about who that son actually is, right? So when you go into chapter 3, he says, I'm giving you, I'm telling you holy partakers of a heavenly calling. So you are partakers of a heavenly calling. You, in other words, you have heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. He says he was, he was faithful to God who appointed him as Moses also when all was in all his house. So this is a direct parallel to what he said in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and, and 3, or 1 and 2 anyway. Okay, so now he says, then it's offered, enter today. He says um, it's a heavenly calling. And what I love is that it's the same heavenly calling that he gave through the prophets in ancient days as it is now. Same in the old, same in the new. Did you catch that? So that it's not a different calling. It's just now done it through a better avenue, through a better uh, uh, representative. Before, according to Hebrews 3, it was given through whom? Moses. And how is Moses described? He's the servant. But then now that it's being given in a better way, through a better avenue, who is the new way in which it has coming to us? Jesus. And how is he better than the servant? He's the son. Okay. A heavenly calling. And I would like to just put on here Old Testament and New Testament, same calling. Okay. 
So I think maybe if you establish what that same calling is, it might be helpful. What was the calling in the Old Testament? What was the heavenly calling in the Old Testament? There you go. To believe in the coming of the Messiah. To believe that God is going to give who he said he would give. So the first reference to that calling that we're speaking of here was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? As a matter of fact, in chapter uh, 4, when it opens in chapter 4, after he has, he has promised them the seed in chapter 3, in chapter 4, uh, Eve names her first son, the next son that she has, um, look, it's a man-child. Now, does that ring any bells to you? Why would that be a significant name? Because he thought it was the one that God had promised, the seed that was coming that would, through him, it would be a blessing, right? Later it gets, we get told that. But so we, a heavenly calling, same calling about the seed. And what would the seed do? Crush, to crush the head of Satan. Okay, so that's the calling. Old Testament, New Testament, same calling. It's about the seed to cr who will crush the head of Satan, the heavenly calling. Okay, now, um, when are they to enter into this particular rest? Today. Now, what did we learn about that today, and how did we, you know, kind of iron out what that meant or what that was trying to um, suggest to us? Yeah, very interesting, isn't it, that God had a calling, a heavenly calling to enter into faith and to believe him from, from the very beginning. And if you go back and do any kind of a study on the, the names that the patriarchs written that are in the word of God, the names that they gave their children through the generations, you can, you can go through every one of those names and see that what they were looking forward to was that day when God was going to fulfill a word to him that he had promised. Sometimes it was about the, the coming of the flood that God had said, and, and it is coming. Um, sometimes it was about the presence of God or the, the personage of God in whatever qualities he had, the, one, the God who hears or the God who speaks or the God who, who judges. I mean, there were all kinds of names that were given to, to their children that did this. So throughout all the word of God, you see this heavenly calling and that the people understood it. Because they did, they did for us what I think is an amazing thing is in many ways, through the naming of their children, the gospel is given, which is really a cool study if you do that. Okay. All right. So, inner today. Today, and, and when it says about today, what does it say that you are to do? Go into, down into verses 7 and 8 and, say, and see what it says there. Do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I like the if on there. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then the caveat there is, as Israel did, right? That's what they're speaking of there. Okay, and that's in 3, 7, and 8. 
So in essence, what they're asking you to do is to do what? <coughs> Hear what? Hear God's voice. Now, is there anything that you have studied previously that kind of makes you think about the idea of hearing the voice of God? Can anybody think about when we did Revelation? Do you remember? He who has an, an ear, let him hear. Exactly. So hear the voice of God. All right. Now, okay, so they've heard, right? Is hearing all you need to do? What is the next quality of entering into that rest today? Faith. Faith. Now, where did you see that and, where, and what does it say? In chapter 4. So 4, he says, let us fear if a promise remains of entering his rest, rest that any of you may seem to have done what? Come short of it. So he's saying fear that you fear. Let us fear least any one of you come short of it. So to me, um, that actually makes a very clear statement. What do you think that's saying there to you and me? Exactly. You better be making sure that you have actually entered into this. You have heard the message, and you apparently have given maybe some lip service, and you have certainly shown up. You're in the house. You're at the church. You're in the congregation with these Hebrew believers who are receiving this letter. But he's actually saying, you better, better be careful. Let us fear if while a promise remains to enter God's rest, one of you may, to, may seem to have come short of it, meaning you didn't enter into it, correct? So, in other words, examine. Examine yourself. And what, that is what we looked at last week when we looked at the assurance of your salvation. How can you have assurance of salvation according to what we looked at last week? What does give you assurance? Pardon? The, okay. The evidence that you can see in your life that there's actually a Holy Spirit living in you. Fruit. There needs to be some kind of fruit evidence, correct? How much scripture talks about that? A lot. A lot. There, is verse, there are so many verses that cover this subject. One of them I specifically love and which I mentioned to you last week. Did any of you go in and look at the one that I gave to you? What, ver what, what book of the Bible did I say is an excellent checklist? Is First John. First John gives you an actual checklist, and First John says these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't say you'll feel it, you'll just, you'll have said, he, actually, he does say you have a confession in there, but that's only one of the evidences. Your confession needs to be correct. But besides your confession, there were other things. Your confession of who Jesus is, your confession of your sin, but also there has to be how do you respond to God's word? By obedience, uh, keeping his commandments. How do you treat your fellow man? By loving them, right? Um, by uh, being deliberately uh, aware of the spiritual warfare that's going on around you and, and being being careful to discern 
whether it's from God or not. That's another quality. If you're a true believer, you have an awareness of a spiritual warfare that's going on around you. And you are careful to pay attention to that because it's an important quality of our faith walk. Uh-huh. Right, and that, and that comes in another book, but absolutely. So, okay, so let us fear, at least any one of you come short of it. So in other words, examine yourself. So that's in 4, 2, and 3. And how do you enter? Now, let me go back to, I think, who was it, Susan? Who gave me that last answer? I think it was Susan, right? Okay, the evidence. Okay, now, what is it that you must do with the good news that you've heard? Unite it with faith, Okay. Uh, um, okay, the good news you have heard unite with faith. Okay, and 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 that's how you enter, right? So if you do, if you have the good news alone, but don't unite it with faith, what does he tell you here in these verses? It does not profit you. You can hear the, and this is what he says happened with Israel. Israel had the word uh, preached to them. They understood that God had made promises. And quite honestly, the promises were not just for the land. That's only one part of it. You have to go back to the initial promises that were given to them, not through Moses, but through who? Abraham. The very beginning of this nation was founded on the Abrahamic covenant. And in that covenant, what was the promise? Again, of a seed, a land, a seed, and a nation. The land and the nation were definitely a part of the promise, but that's only a part of it. The other part was the seed himself. What's really interesting to me is how Hebrews begins to actually show them that the, the entering into the land itself is secondary. There's something better than that, something more important than that, which is who? The seed who is Jesus. Right. So he's saying you have to unite it with faith and enter it. And what they're having faith in makes the difference. It's the good news that they must believe and unite with faith. So I would like to just go and look at a few verses real quick about the good news. So I'm going to throw out some scripture verses. I want you guys to look them up for me. Someone look at uh, Luke 2, 10 and 11. Who would like to do that one for us? I need a volunteer. Okay, Don. Um, Matthew four twenty three. Okay, Carol in the back. Um, Acts 17, 18. Uh, Celeste, you get that one. Now we're going to go to the ones that we just talked about in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 12, 3 and Genesis 15, 6. Who wants to do those two for me? Together. D the Genesis. Thank you, Susan. Okay. And one last one, which will help us in Galatians 3, 8. Who wants Galatians? Thank you, uh, Becky. Okay, so that'll help us get a good idea about what the good news is. Now, this is barely touching the subject, as you probably know. The good news is like everywhere. But I just wanted to hit on a few verses that just clarified for us when it's speaking about the good news, what is it actually speaking of here? Since it's talking about that, in, that by this good news, you must unite the good news with faith in order to enter it, all right? And that if you, if you, and he says you might come short of it, so you need to examine yourself. 
And the ones that he gave as an example were Israel, who had hardened their heart. They were not listening to the voice of God, that it's a heavenly calling. And the heavenly calling, in, in, really, in the whole word of God, is established right from the beginning in Genesis, which is about the seed that's going to come and crush the head of Satan. All right, so that's how I'm seeing what's going on in this particular chapter. Um, let's go and look at those words on good news. Start with the Luke 2.10, Don. All right, and it is Christ the Lord, or he is the Messiah the Lord, okay? And that's who they were looking for, right? All right, go into Matthew 4.23. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Okay, in your translation, it didn't use the word good news. Is there... Is there uh, let me read it off my sheet, because and mine is the New American Standard. Uh, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, Matthew 4.23. So, he, again, it's the good news. But same thing, you said yours used the word gospel, correct? Oh, maybe mine was, uh, maybe mine went back to King James. Mine might have gone back to King James. That's exactly right. They're synonymous. That's what I'm, that's right. And so that's why I wasn't sure which translate. My, um, my, my cross-referencing on my computer that drops down, when my sheet opens up, my Bible opens up on top, it flips back to King James. So I don't, I didn't know which one I had actually written down. I'm sorry. So that's fine. Okay. So this is probably King James. Yes, and that's very interesting because in that case, it's the gospel of the kingdom, which entails everything. It's the, the present kingdom and the kingdom to come, right? And how you enter into that kingdom. How do you enter into how, that gospel, which says, how, how are you going to enter it today, correct? So it includes all of it, the whole, the whole story. It's not just an isolated one point, which is where I think some of the, the confusion has come with this particular uh, por portion of Scripture where they want to say, well, it's only talking about this one thing. But it's not because you can see it throughout what we've looked at already just in these first three, uh, four chapters. We're seeing that sometimes it's talking about today in or in that, that's talking about the justification. Sometimes it's talking about the present life we are living. But then it's also talking about things that are yet to come you know and that's right <laughs> exactly we are aliens that's right okay so now let's go to um let's go to acts this is paul speaking Okay, so there, now we got two things in there about Jesus and the resurrection. So there we get again, the resurrection speaks of what quality of our salvation? The glorification. So it's the good news includes that, doesn't it? 
Okay, so he says Jesus and the, and the resurrection. Now let's go back to Genesis. Again, I, I want to take, for those of you who haven't done this a hundred times, you need to do it at least one more. Let's go back to, let's go back to Genesis 12 and then drop for, forward to 15.6. So, and who is the you there? Abraham. Abraham. So he's calling Abraham and he's saying, I'm going to bless you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? Then go to, to 15.6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as right. So Abraham believed God, that God was going to bless him and that through him a blessing would come to the world, correct? He believed God. Now the New Testament interpretation is Galatians 3.8. Now tell us what that was saying there. Wow. So it was the gospel that God was actually speaking to Abraham. And the gospel is the good news. And what is talked about here in this book is the good news. So the good news, yes, there are times when the good news is presented and it's specifically talking about one of its qualities. Correct? It's either talking about something to do with justification, something to do with sanctification, or something to do with glorification. You have to split hairs for yourself each time. The, the scripture makes that switch. That's why it's really important that you understand there are three verb tenses. But the context and the flow of thought that's going on, whatever you're reading, is going to make it, I think, pretty much obvious. If you're a little bit confused and you're not sure, it's kind of like those pronouns of he when you're not sure, is that Jesus he or is that God he? Is that Holy Spirit he? Sometimes you can't work it out, so you can just mark it all three. Okay? And that's kind of what I'm doing today. When he says... The rest of God, it is so great a salvation. I'm saying on the whole, this rest of God is the so great a salvation. And it can encompass all three points. And you can split the hairs when you need to, to make the correct understanding of what you're reading. But that does require a higher calling in your ability as a mature believer, right? So you're, that's why you're getting the training that you're getting here in inductive processes so that you are able to come up to that higher place of saying, oh, but this here can't be talking about that because it says that if you don't, then this. And I mean, you have to iron it all through and not, not violate your known doctrines. Okay, so now we've done a list on the good news. I did not write those things down, but you can, and, you, and it's on my list when you get it uh, later. But the good news basically is... Um, salvation, it's, the, it's that Jesus is the Savior, that he's been born, that it's the Messiah, the Lord, that he has come. The opening of our Hebrews record in chapter 1 goes into that in great detail, doesn't it, about him being the Lord, the begotten, the, only, the Son of God. Okay, so now, since we know that this word is the good news, and we know that he tells us that we need to fear, and, we, and he also says that you need to pay close, much closer attention, correct? Let's see, let me find out where that one was. 
For this reason in chapter 2, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So in other words, you've come into the congregation there. You are in the midst. I want you to examine your life to see whether or not you're actually in the faith or not. He says, and if you're here and you're not actually in the faith, I don't want you to drift away from it. I want you to instead assure your your position by standing firmly on what is true about this, this rest of God. And who the rest of God is. Then he says, um, why is that an important quality, an important thing concerning entering in? Because he gives us a warning in verses uh, 12 and 13. What does he tell us there in chapter 4, 12 and 13? The good news is going to do what? Yeah, the good, the good, the word of God, which is the good news, will also one day judge us. God says that by his word, it penetrates the heart. It can discern between uh, your thoughts and intentions even. So that if you're not sure, but who is sure? God, he knows. He knows this. You might even convince yourself and trick yourself. But what I believe is true, and what God seems to be saying here to us, is that you don't have to be deceived about it. You can have an assurance. It depends on, are you serious enough to pay attention and have the kind of fear about the Lord and his word and knowing that one day he will judge you by it? Are you willing to soberly bowing an ego before the Lord and examine your heart to see whether or not you're truly in the faith. And if you are willing to do that, I would say you, you are in the faith. It's those who say, forget you, I'm not examining my life because I don't want to give up these sins. If someone has confronted a person about sin and they absolutely dogmatically refuse, that's when you can question whether or not they're actually in the faith or not. But they certainly should question it. And it's not our place to judge a person's soul. But it is our place to judge our own. So we need to go within ourselves. And if we're not willing to do that, what does that suggest? That we're not saved. That we're not. That there's no humility about our, our future account before God. And so God says, you will one day give an account to God, of whom you will give an account, it says in that verse. Um, uh, There is nothing hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of God with whom we have to do. The one who we will give an account to. And so if, in fact, you are saved, have the assurance of it, but, but if you're not certain... Be willing to examine yourself and consider, are you in the faith or not? That's, that is going to give you that assurance that you need. Now, why? Because what does God say? External evidence. When I don't, well, maybe we can get some of it down. Let's write some of it. Okay. So these are the, this is the heavenly calling. But what about those that he says they shall not enter? Okay, hard hearts, and that's in three eight. And okay, they heard. They heard the word of God. 
but it was not united by faith, right? So no profit. Whoops. For them, right? And what, that was in four, two or three? Two, okay, four, two. Hard hearts in three, eight. Uh, they heard the word of God, but it did, but they didn't unite it with faith, and so it didn't profit them any, right? And this is interesting because faith means believing, right? But what two words seems to be synonymous in this particular passage that make it really clear to us that they seem to be hooked at the hip? Believing in what? Obedience. So it seems like obedience is the, the, is the evidence, it's the external evidence of whether or not your faith is actually genuine. You might say all the right words, yes, I love Jesus, yes, I believe on the Son of God, yes, I, you know, he died for my sins, yes, I believe he created the world, yes, I believe he is a triune God. You can say all the right words of yes, 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 but if it's not united by the kind of faith which is demonstrated in your life but through obedience... Then you need to consider, am I or am I not? Now, I'm not saying you aren't, but I'm also not saying you are. I'm saying you need to be willing to examine yourself before the Lord and ask God to reveal that to you. Because he says about those who had hard hearts and those who were disobedient, what? (laughs) Yeah. So those who have those hard hearts right? Those with the hard hearts, those who um, do not obey, do not obey him, will not enter. That's the picture. Remember, again, we're back to understanding that the land and the entering onto the land was all used by God as a picture for a spiritual truth, which was entering into the real salvation of God. The land was the picture. The truth reality is salvation. So these Israelites who were not allowed to enter into the land, God did that to demonstrate to humanity, you also will not enter into the true heaven, into the true land of God, into the true heavenly abode, if you do not believe by faith, which is demonstrated by obedience. And that's exactly what James said. There are so many scriptures, and we did some of those last week. Faith without works is one of them. And it says, it's like, he actually says, and you're justified by your works. And that word justifies doesn't mean that's how you're saved, justification, salvation. What it means is it's proven. That word, when you translate it, it means your, your faith is proven to be true by your works. So, again, we're back to the evidences by your obedience. So, if you know someone who claims to be saved and yet they're living habitually in sin and it's a sin that you have revealed to them, you've con- challenged them on you've, and you've, you've um, confronted them with and yet they still refuse and it's an obvious thing, my question would be, would be I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're saved. You might think that they're saved, but I'm telling you, I don't know. According to what God says, you can question whether they have actual salvation or not. Maybe they have other motives for being in the church that they are in. Possibly. Okay. Yes, Carol. Um, 
Um, yeah, that part, we can't, that is the tougher part. The tougher part is when you have, and I can tell you, that was me, Carol, that was me. I walked an aisle, I made the right profession, I, I grew up in a church, and I was being a good girl. I was being basically obedient to God all my life. But I have come to now know, as an, now that I'm truly in faith, that I was not saved all those years. Because I had not bowed my knee to God and my life had not been transformed. There was not a hunger for the word of God. There was not a desire to be in the fellowship with the brethren. There was not um, even a a desire to want to confront my own sin. I had no desire to do that. So I was that person that you're talking about. The one who can look good. And Jesus addresses them, doesn't he? What did he call them? Whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside is dead man's bones. So there are some people who can play the game really good. But generally, here's what's interesting. What what does Hebrews tell us about those who are truly in the faith? What will they do? If you are of God's house, you will what? Hold fast to your assurance, to your confidence, to your hope. If, in fact, you are a partaker of Christ, what will you do? You will hold fast to that assurance, right? Who is your assurance? Jesus. And so, therefore, you won't walk away. But guess what I did? I walked away for quite a few years. There, were, there was a period in my life when I first married that we were, we were those Easter and Christmas people who showed up once in a while. But there was no faithful commitment on my part. But yet, I had walked an aisle, and I had been a good girl, and on the whole, my life looked righteous. And if you had asked me, I would have said, yes, I'm saved. Because I had deluded myself. But I can tell you that now that I'm actually being obedient, when God brought me to a place in my life where I actually submitted my life to the Lord, there was a transformation in everything about my attitude, about how I revered God, how I feared God, uh, the fact that I, that I was really committed now to being in church and being in fellowship with believers. I hungered for his word. And it hasn't stopped. <laughs> you know, I can't stop being hungry for God's word. That is, that is the evidence. So if the individual refuses, if you're that person, and in this group, I can't imagine there be any one of you. But I could be fooled. But you have to examine yourself and say, why am I here? Am I really hungry for God's word? And is God really central in my life? Have I made that commitment to him that... that that he is my hope, he is my assurance, he is um, the confidence that I have. And when I go before him in prayer, am I confident? Or do I go there with my hand in my hat in, in fear that he's going to squash me? I think there's a, there's a peace that comes. There is a rest that he says you can confidently approach him once you've made this assurance uh oh. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. Well, one thing that, that I've been struggling with is uh, with friends who say that, you know, you teach the gospel to your child and make them say the prayer, and then they're guaranteed to be saved. I know, I know. No, it, it, it isn't that, you know, it isn't that. That is why I. For, isn't that easy. Right. There's got to be follow up, there's mm-hmm. got to be a change in the heart. And to tell somebody that write down this date because on this date you're saved and nothing 
Right. And that's what Kay is going to talk about on the video. And she's saying the, the assurance that you have is what are you doing today? Are you abiding? Are you staying? Are you living for him? Are you hungry for his word? Are you loving your brother? Are there signs in your life externally and internally? Have you made a firm commitment to the Lord? Is he your master? Is he your savior? Because Lord and master, savior and, and Lord are synonymous. They come together. They cannot be separated. He cannot be your savior and then he becomes your Lord later. That is not that is not biblical teaching. And I know it's a hard one. This, is a, this one's tender to our hearts because we have people we really love that sometimes we're, we get fearful of. I can tell you one thing that even for myself, when I evaluated myself at one point, when I finally came to a place where I was mature enough in my faith that I could, and I made the confession to God, you know what, God, I wasn't saved at nine. I wasn't saved until I was 21. It scared me a little bit because I thought, what if I had died between 9 and 21? But the point is, God knew. And are you not securely in the palm of the hand of God the Father? Does he not know the end from the beginning? Do you think he will hold you until you come into faith, if in fact you're going to come into faith? Does he not give chance after chance? Look at Israel. Look what we looked at in Ezekiel this week about, about him having to judge the fathers, but then giving a second chance to the children also. And then how long were they on the land? And year after year after year, they were disobedient. They still are. They still are. 490 years on, on the land, I think it was, right? Something like that. All right. So now let's, go, let's move on a little bit further. So now what we can see then, it's a heavenly calling. It's the same calling we've had from the very beginning in Genesis. This is how I see this is what this is speaking of. In Genesis uh, uh, 3, is it 15, I guess, 3.15, about the seed coming, right? Okay, and today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as Israel did. Hear the voice of God. Let us fear God, lest any one of you come short of it. In other words, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. The good news you have heard is to be united with faith in order to have entered. And what does that mean? He says, the word, remember, the word of God is going to judge you. And those who didn't enter were the ones who were disobedient. The external side was disobedience. Now, you guys did a bunch of word studies on rest and Sabbath. Do we need to go through those or shall we just move forward? Uh, the rest and Sabbath. Does everybody under, kind of understand that? Is there any questions about that? Because we did do that in homework, and I don't mind covering it. I just don't want to. Okay, well, then let's go on. So what did, tell me this in conclusion. What did you learn about the pictures of, of the Sabbath rest? What did the Sabbath rest teach Israel? What was its purpose? Excellent. That it was God who did the work. And so they were to rest one day out of the week to remember that God did it. God made all the provisions. He created everything. He placed man on the earth. All that the man needed for life and righteousness was provided by God at the beginning, correct? Last week, we actually went back and looked in Ephesians and 1 Peter uh, 1.20 to say that actually in that 
completed work was also the plan of salvation, correct? That from before the foundation of the world, Jesus was planned by God for man. So that's part of the work. Although it's not addressed in Genesis, and it's not addressed when he, when he gives Israel the, the, that part of the picture, but we know that this is the way God's word is. Never is a totality of all information given in any one place. You have to put all the pieces together. But the work was done, and that the work was done from before the foundation of the world. In this particular flow of thought in Hebrews, what is it linked to that the work was done from, before, from the foundation of the world? What is it linked to in here? What subject? Entering into God's rest. So we know that what he's talking about is that from the foundation of the world, what was needed for entering into the rest was already provided. And that the Sabbath rest in part actually included that understanding, although we never see him actually declare that, that he's saying, I'm providing for you salvation as well. He simply says, God did it all. He created the earth and everything in it, right? Okay, so they had the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest then taught them that God did all the work and that they were to rest in God in that. In other words, by grace it's provided. They didn't do it, God did it. So it taught them grace also. All right, the second thing was the land of rest. So what did the land of rest teach? What was the picture in it? Yeah, that there was a 70th year, year, yeah, and that was another, a little bit of another subject. Slide. Okay, that there's a place provided for them by God, and it's a good place, and how is it described? A land of milk and honey, and that was the most grand thing that they could think of, right, as people at that time in history, was a place that would provide them sustenance and delight, right? Milk, land of milk and honey. Okay, so... In that, what we see in the flow of thought in Hebrews is that they didn't get to go into that land of milk and honey unless they did what? Obedience and, and faith. They entered by faith, which was demonstrated by obedience. Okay? So it's not because of obedience that they got to enter alone, but it was faith which motivated them to be obedient because the person of faith will be obedient. That's a lesson for us. If you know somebody who's claiming to be a Christian, but they are not obedient to God or to the leading of the Holy Spirit or to the truths in God's word, then you could question whether or not that person is in faith or not. Um, I don't know whether that person is for you to challenge or not challenge. That's all between you and them. But, um, you know, you have to approach the Lord on that and make that decision. But, but I can tell you this, that, once I came to understand this principle for my personal faith walk, it has helped me to better know how to um, evaluate the people that are in my life, particularly my immediate family life, and to know how to respond to them better. Because the hardest thing in the world is when you have a person who says that they are a believer and yet they continually act like an unbeliever, how hurtful that is to you, how frustrating that is to you and how you just constantly are at tug of war in your heart because they say they're a Christian but they act like an unbeliever and no matter and and when they do act like a believer it's because you've coaxed them into it (laughs) you've drugged them down that path right please come to church with me or or please don't treat your neighbor that way or please don't cheat on your taxes or please don't whatever right don't be involved in that habitual sin or that obvious sin that God calls 
sin or an abomination. And he calls that to the, as a matter of fact, he speaks about the Sabbath rest in Ezekiel. And he says about them, what are they committing? Abomination. Because they don't honor the Sabbath. So did you know that not going to church and honoring God once a week as he desires? It's not going to church that saves you, but it's an honoring of God. And he says, if you refuse to do that, it's an abomination. Interesting. They don't know that. People don't know that. But we need to teach them, don't we? All right. So the, so the word study, so the rest of God then about the land of rest is to teach them that they enter it by faith th- demonstrated through obedience, okay? You don't enter by obedience. You enter by faith that's demonstrated by obedience. I just think that's important to put it in that order so that you get the, that it's not your works. After all, the rest is God's work. Right? Okay, perfect. Okay, so that completes the entering part. That's, in, in totality, what do we call this? That's right. Justification. That's what that one is. All right, so now let's move on to um, the next part. Where he does tell us then to examine. He says to take care, right? So we're going to look at, oh, let me get a different color here. Examine yourself is a part, examining yourself on the whole. We're going to see in this book there's going to be additional subjects that have come up where it's actually not just speaking about examine to see whether you're in the faith or not, but it's also going to be a, a, a thing where they're going to, God's going to say you need to examine yourself to see, because there's discipline that he will apply to believers who are being disobedient, who are out of fellowship with him. That doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but there are, are there not acts of disobedience that we can all fall into, right, for periods of time? Um, my, my challenge would be that, you know, I don't believe you stay there for years and years and years. You can fall into a sin but if you really have the Holy Spirit and, and somebody shows you in Scripture, what should be your response? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, you know what? I think they're right. And you might at first go, no, no, no. I'm not doing that. That's not me. You might at first, the first response, your knee-jerk response would be to defend yourself and justify it. Right? So that can happen. So don't feel bad if you've done that. But once you've justified yourself in front of them, now you're alone with God. Now what? That's what Romans says. Romans says that the Spirit, if in fact you have the Spirit, the Spirit will either condemn you or justify you. And by that, God, you will know whether you are righteously living before the Lord or not. And we're going to see later in Hebrews, he's going to talk about the son that, that is disciplined by the Father. Okay, so in your faith walk, once you're already justified, now you're in your faith walk, there's also an examining, there's an examine yourself here. To see if you're in faith. And there's an examine yourself here to see it um if um, there is obedience and that peace that comes. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting is someone had mentioned to me uh, last week about um, the rest of God, and they used the word peace. And I said, 
Well, peace technically is a different quality, especially in the context of what we're looking at in Hebrews. Would you define what we're looking at in Hebrews as something which gives your heart a sense of, of contentment or happiness or joy? Is that what's, is this talking about an emotional state? That, is that what the rest, okay, no, it isn't. So that kind of peace, we often call rest, rest in the Lord, have peace in your heart, right? But that's not what's being talked about. The subject matter here is actually about entering in by something that you hear and that you believe it. That's salvation. So we, you do have to remember that sometimes that rest of God is going to come up in that in that perspective that the peace. I looked up the word peace out of um, a couple of passages in Romans um, just to be sure that I could show you this clearly. And the, the definition, two of the definitions for peace is um, of the Messiah's peace. The way that leads to peace, however, is salvation in him. So the peace that you get comes after you've done this, entering into his rest. So entering rest comes first, then can come peace in, in your sanctification. But it's not the same subject matter as rest that's being spoken of here in our book. In this thing, you're abiding. Yes. Abiding. It's abiding. abiding right. And what I want to do is deflect you so that you don't go down to, this, to the emotional part of it. I'm not talking about the peace that you get that gives you that good, warm feeling, that sense of security and comfort but rather it's the confidence to approach his throne. What is it that gives you that rest in sanctification? That's where we're going to kind of narrow our, our focus in because that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the good feelings that you get. Um, I put in the, its distinctive subject. It's obvious from the Hebrews text that the, te that the rest of God is speaking of salvation, not an emotional state of well-being. However, it is good to note that true peace is only found by those who have entered God's rest. So the first definition is the way that leads to peace is salvation in Jesus. It's the Messiah's peace that you get. Of Christians, it says it's the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content in its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. Then it gave me some synonyms, peace, harmony, tranquility. They use the word shalom, which we hear about through the Hebrews, welfare and health, and then it also said freedom from worry. But we're not talking about that subject, right? We're talking about a different kind of, of quote, peace, but it's not peace, it's rest. So in the just in the sanctification rest that we are looking at in the book so far in Hebrews is talking about that which give that because of your justification having entered in then you are able to confidently approach him. So let's look here. He says to examine yourself. The first warning he gives you is take care. Right? Least there be an evil unbelieving heart and that's in 312 right and le least there be in you or in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart and then he also tells us to encourage each other right so 
So the first one is, is that you're to examine to do what? Who are you examining? Yourself. Yourself first. Then secondarily, what do you do? You reach out and you look around to, your, to those in your fellowship with you at the church and you say, how can I encourage someone that it seems to me like they're faltering? They're stumbling. Maybe they've gotten into a certain sin or a certain lifestyle pattern that needs to be corrected. Okay? And he says to them, then don't uh, fall away. Do not fall by following their example. By following Israel's example of disobedience. All right, so that's when we went and we looked at Ezekiel. So now let's go to Ezekiel 20, which you all looked at, in verses 1 to 24. And tell me what you see going on in that particular cross-reference. What was the demonstration that was given to us about that kind of disobedience? Because he's making a reference to it specifically, right? He's saying, don't fall like Israel did. So what did Israel do in Ezekiel 20? That's one of the things. They didn't forsake the idols that they had, all, had been familiar with, that which was um, in Egypt from before them. So I'm going to start it by saying God called them. God calls their disobedience or their sin, basically, abominations. I'm just going to put that on there because I just think that there, almost as a foundation to it, to understand God, how God sees it, and he, that's what he calls it. He says they did not forsake, did not forsake their idols. Now that one, I think almost all of us will go, yeah, God, those people who don't forsake their idols, they do not know God. Are we all, like, on board with that one? Pretty obvious, if you refuse to give up your idols, you do not know God. All right, so that would be interesting to, to consider what kind of idols we have in our life today. In the lives of us today, we don't have a little statue that we set necessarily, but what are idols for you and I? Your money. Your, your gadgets and fun thing, your, your entertainment. If, that be, if your entertainment, your traveling, your TV, your money, even your reputation, if, if any of those become more important to you than God himself, who is to be above all, to have no other gods before me, then if, if there's anything in your life that supersedes God, that out, that out trumps him, then you need to be considering whether or not you are actually in the faith and or are you, as if you are in the faith, are you being an obedient child? Are you walking in faithfulness to him? And it doesn't have to be what we call horrendous sin. Absolutely. Your children can become your idols. And in my case, my grandchildren can become my idols, right? My, oh, yeah, husband. Well, not so much. But, yeah, could be. <laughs> Just kidding, honey. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I know. My husband, yeah, he, yeah. But if my husband becomes my idols, if my child, if my, I mean, and I, I got to say, there have been people in my, in my lifetime that I've known, their kids are like everything. 
their kids become so important to them that and everything else takes second seat. So including God, you know, being in God's word and being in God's house to, are secondary to meeting the needs of their children. And I have seen that. Yes. Anything that takes your focus and attention off of God as your primary purpose, as your primary focus, then you can begin to say it could have been become an idol to you. But only you know that. Only you can examine your own life and say, is that true? And if you, you have to be honest about it, maybe what you do need to do too is even ask a friend who's in faith and say, do you think that this thing in my life has become an idol for me? You know, because maybe their perspective, if they're a good enough friend, they could say, yeah, I think maybe, maybe you've put that thing way above other things. I love it when I see, I've got to say the other is true too, though. I have seen in people's lives their discipline of putting God first and always saying, yes, I love this thing. This is my passion. I love to go do this. Or, I love my kids. I love the whatever. I love my, my, my quilting. I love my quilting. But... It is secondary. My, my relationship with God and my responsibilities to him are first. And I place them first and I make them the priority. Have you guys ever seen those, um, those uh, uh, what do they call them, Ex- those demonstrations by pastors where they get a jar and they put the big rocks in first and then the, you know, if you try to do it in reverse, if you pour in the sand first and all the small things second, and at the end you want to put in the big rock, it won't fit. But if you put the big rock in first, then put in the smaller pebbles, and then pour in the sand, it all fits. And that's the demonstration of putting God first. Make the, the big things in first in your life, everything else will fit. And I can remember years back I used to disciple young believers. I haven't done it in a long time, but years ago I did. And uh, that was a, a real practical thing we had to work on on a constant basis was make God first Make your Bible study first, make your time at church first, make your prayer time first. Those things have to be first. Then, if there's time to go and do all these fun things you like to do, you do those second. I love that. Okay. All right, so God calls their sin abomination. They did not forsake their idols, but what else did they do? I thought was much... Pardon? The things he lists over and over again. Yes. Okay, they rejected his statutes. In other words, his commandments rejected. And rebelled. And rebelled against them. Okay. Okay, that would have... (coughs) All right. In relationship to our subject matter, which is the Sabbath, what else did he say? They profaned the Sabbath. They did not keep the Sabbath, right? Um, They rejected and profaned it. Okay. And that's in 2016. 20 and 21, and also in 24. So it's repeated three times in there about that, right, or four, correct? Yeah. My Sabbath they greatly profaned. They even profaned my Sabbath. They profaned my Sabbath, had profaned my Sabbath. So I see it at least four times. And I did it quickly. So I'm, And she did say that. She said, I don't want you to spend so much time. You're not here to understand it all. However, most of us did Ezekiel. 
right? Together. So for most of us, this was just a review. It was nice. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. And they have that no reverential fear where it says, let us fear, right? right? Where is that reverential fear of, un and that comes and connects to the understanding that one day you give an account to God. He's given you the good news, his word, which beforehand was given through the fathers, but now is given through the sons. That very same word, one day you will stand before God and he will judge you by it. And where's your fear of God in understanding that you give an account to God one day? Yeah. Okay. So in there, he, he talks about, now, what was the Sabbath given? It was given for, to Israel for, according to Ezekiel. This was interesting. Gave you a little more insight about it. It was a sign. It was a sign between them and the Lord that they were in covenant with him, right? Um, and I think it's really cool, too, because it also used the word sanctify. It says that, you, that they would know that it was the Lord that sanctified, had set them apart, had made them this peculiar people. Again, that God had done it. By his grace, he did it, right? Okay, so... Another thing that's repeated in here, and I just have to bring it up because I, I think it's important, that God acted for whose sake? Why did he, why did he, for his own namesake? Again, over and over. All of this goes back to the fact that it is God that is to be honored. His holy name is to be honored. That you and I, he, as believers, true believers, he won't allow you and I either to, to in any way dishonor his name. He will discipline. Now, discipline comes in all kinds of forms, right? But the scriptures give us the very clear understanding that, that it can be an illness. It can be just a weakness in your life of not being successful, not being as fruitful, not being um, as able to, to do certain things as you should. Um, but he can also even take your life according to scripture, if he so chooses. Now, hopefully, as obviously has not happened to me yet, he has not had to discipline me to the point of death. <laughs> He's managed to do it through other avenues. And it doesn't mean that everything that goes on in your life is, is discipline. It can also just be part of the process of... He's also pointing out there that he, did, he thought in his wrath to annihilate him, but mm -hmm. he acted for his name's sake. Right. You know what's interesting about that is how angry God really was with them. How absolutely furious he was because of his holy name. Because the nations around were watching this relationship between he, he and them. But what's interesting to me is, in the end, what did God do to those who were so, he was so angry that he wanted to annihilate the whole lot? Well, yes, but before... Before they went on the land, what did God do? He was selective, wasn't he? Yeah. He selectively says, okay, you who are of higher accountability because you witnessed the things that I did and because you saw my mighty wonders and miracles and you did not believe, you will not enter. And then he allowed who to enter? The children. The next generation. And that next generation then was given a chance to go in on the land. And then when we get to Ezekiel, what happened? They didn't do any better. 
They didn't do any better than their parents before them. So interesting to me here is this. On the whole, was Israel, the nation of Israel, in a covenant with God? Had they, quote, walked an aisle and been baptized? Yeah, but were they, were they saved? No. And because, first of all, understanding of the covenants, you understand that the covenant of the law does not save. But they entered into that covenant with God with lip service only. And then what did they do with their lives? They did what they wanted anyway. And then in the end, what did God do? He cast them off the land, again, because of their disobedience. So in that is a picture that God says about true salvation, about the heavenly rest that we want to enter. Not the land of rest, but the heavenly rest. How do you enter into that? Faith demonstrated by Obedience. obedience. Okay, so examine yourself. Make sure that you're entering into that. Be diligent to enter into it. Which means you have to be paying attention, right? That's in 4.11. Be diligent to enter into his rest. So God acted for his holy name's sake. Now, this is for this reason we must pay much closer attention. Because you're to be diligent. Pay much closer, closer attention. I want to do something now. I hope we have time to get all of this. We're running out. I might have to stop writing and just talk. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, uh, That's in 2-1. Two warnings. Be diligent and pay much closer attention there. If the word before proved unalterable and every transgression received a just penalty, if for Ezekiel, if for these people, It was an unalterable word under a covenant that didn't even bring salvation, but was to bring God glory, and they were to be obedient to it. And he says, look, if I I brought just penalty on them, then what concerning what the Son has brought? How much greater is it going to be? Uh, how, How will we escape if we neglect what? So there tells you that this rest that we're entering into is speaking of salvation. How, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that was in, um, let me look and see, 2-3. So we better pay much closer attention in 2-1. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation in the very following uh, verse in 3? Okay? All right, so now then let's look at the good news. What is, how the good news gives you and I rest, okay? I want us to look at what God has told us so far in Hebrews. We're going to use just Hebrews to to draw some of these conclusions about this rest that you and I are in, and what is it that we are to find rest in? It's not speaking, obviously, about the emotional things, right? It's speaking about some facts that God has already laid down for us. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Tell me, what have we learned about this good news? What did we say the good news was when we looked at those verses? about the good news a few minutes ago. 
It's about the seed, Jesus, right? So the good news is about Jesus, who is the Lord, the Christ. And the very first one that we looked at, what Don read to us was, uh, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord, or the Christ, the Lord. So that's the good news. So now concerning that good news, it's what gives us rest. Okay, so let's talk about that rest. And it's just one quality of rest. I'm not talking about peace. I'm talking about rest in our sanctification. So what gives us rest is the knowledge of that good news. So go back and tell me, what did you learn in chapter 1? Maybe let's just go through, say, verse 5 and kind of pick out some things that you see in there that give you the rest that you want in sanctification, that you can confidently approach him. Why? Okay. Mm. Oh, okay. Hey, you know what? Let's start with that one. Because Jesus made purification. For sin, right? And that's in verse um, 3, 1, 3. Okay. So if you consider that when you go back here, that he's going to crush the head of Satan. Can you see how this links us forward? That you enter into the heavenly calling, which was that God was going to provide this seed who would crush the head of Satan. And here we see in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus made purification for the sin that they had committed right from the beginning in Genesis. All right? So, and what else do we see? That Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. Does that not give you rest? Why does that give you rest? What, what is it about that thought? Yeah, that the work's accomplished. It's finished. Because under the old system, if you go back into our context again, the Hebrew audience, what system had they been under? The law and the temple, right? And in the temple... How often do purification for sin have to be provided? Year by year, and actually even weekly, there were some other kinds of of, uh, uh, sacrifices that had to be made on a regular basis. But year by year, they had a day of atonement that they had to go in to make atonement for the sins of the people. And in this new thing, what gives us rest? Because Jesus has made purification. You and I do not delight in that enough. We do not understand the rest that we really have. If you and I, every single Sunday, had to get up and go and take some kind of a sacrifice, some kind of an offering, go into the system of the, of that, the, the priesthood that they had at that time, the work that's involved in that, he actually tells him in chapter 4, if in fact you have actually entered into this rest through justification, In verse 410, he says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. He makes a mention that basically, if if you Hebrew people are actually in the rest of God through justification, then in your sanctification you will rest in that knowledge that Jesus made purification for sin. It's done. And that he now sits at the right hand of the Father. No more work is needed to be done. So from a Hebrew mind, that is a significant point that gives you rest in your sanctification walk. Now sits at the right hand of God. Okay, and that is, um, one, that was also 1-3. 
All right, what else? What else would give them rest? Well, first of all, what got them into their salvation was knowing who he was, right? So what are some identifying qualities about this Jesus? What? That he's what? He becomes their great high priest. What verse are you in? One to five is where we're working. One through five. In chapter one, verses one to five. Oh, okay. Well, then you just went forward. But yes, it's true that he's also their great high priest. <laughs> in, that re- in that regard, he, he making purification for sin, so they have no need for a great high priest. Let's put on here. No need for an earthly priest. He is their great high priest. I'll put that on there just because you said, you mentioned it. Do you have a verse on that, Celeste? 414? Okay. All right, now let's go back to chapter 1 because I just want to kind of make the area of our work smaller for us so that we don't, we could spend a lot of time otherwise. It would be hard. Um, what do you see in, in verse uh, 2? Who is Jesus according to verse 2? He is the son. So now they're saying, okay, so what is it that gives you rest in sanctification? Knowing that Jesus is God's son. He's the one. He's that seed that was promised. He is the son. Jesus is the son of God. All right, what else? Okay, he, that Jesus is appointed by God as heir of all things. So in your salvation rest, in sanctification, what does that say for you and me? What, is it, what does that mean to you and I? Why is that an important point? Yes, literally, that he is the sovereign over it all, right? Okay. I don't have room to write that down, so I'm going to let you guys write it on your paper. Okay. Um, that he is God. Thank you. That was the one I was hoping you got. guys would get. He is God. He is God. 1-3, uh, I think, also, correct? Okay, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Jesus' power. And when Jesus had made purifications of sins, then he sat down at the right hand. Um, Now, let's go on to 2, chapter 2 a little bit, just a couple of points. There's a section in there that talks about what the fact that he is the God that was spoken of from the beginning, the seed that would crush the head of Satan. Let's go into verse uh, 14 and uh, down through, well, 14, 15. Actually, you can go through the whole, that last section there, 14 to 16 at least. What do we see in there that gives you this rest that you can confidently approach? Okay. Okay, so Jesus rendered powerless. The devil. So there he is. He accomplished what he promised from the very beginning. This good news that we knew uh, he had promised to us from the beginning. 
that he would that that a seed would come to crush the head of Satan and here we have it in chapter 2 that he rendered that that Satan that devil powerless do you see the flow on this where is your rest in sanctification Jesus so therefore when he when you go back and he says you are the house of God if you hold fast to what your confession and the hope, right? The boast of your hope. Who is? Jesus. And he, you are a partaker of Christ. You come into covenant with Christ if you hold fast to the assurance of your salvation, the assurance of that which you believe on. So let's go back and uh, the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. In other words, and you don't defect from it. You don't, you don't run away from it. You don't at some point, throw your hands up and say, well, I used to believe that, but now I don't. You don't become an apostate of faith. This is what my son did, sadly. He made a confession at one point, and now he's walked away, and he says, I don't believe it anymore. I know, it's sad. I agree. He did not lose salvation. He had been a part of a, of a body at one, for a period of time for other reasons, and now he's walked away. That's right. Well, what is it that, that when you enter in by justification, what is it that fixes you so that you, d you are not able to even walk away, that you don't depart from it, that you do stay hold fast? The Holy Spirit. He seals you with the Holy Spirit until the day of re redemption. Now, how does God know who to give the Holy Spirit to so he doesn't make a mistake and give it to someone who's going to later defect? He knows your heart. Because he knows your heart. The word of God, he says, and he can pierce into even the motives and the intentions of the heart. God knows who to give his spirit to and who not to because he's the all-knowing sovereign God. Okay? All right, so the rest of God entered by faith. The good news is what gives us our rest in sanctification. That's why we can then confidently approach him. Um, all right, so now let's talk about then what's to come. The last one in this, and we've just got a few minutes, but we're good, I think. The world to come because this is talking about what quality then of salvation glorification where is the rest in glorification and particularly for this audience this subject matter really matters Craig and I talked about just a little bit earlier about these people the one thing they had a great focus on was what what was God promising to the Israel nation that land, that one day they would live on the land and that they would rule over it, that they would be the master of their own lives. They had had that given to them at one time, but what happened? They lost, they lost it. They did not lose their salvation. They lost the privilege of being on the land, which was a picture of salvation, because of unbelief and disobedience. So now what God has said is, one day I will do for Israel exactly what I said. Uh, Hebrews 11, or no, Romans 11, talks about the grafting in and how they're going to be grafted in. And the, 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 the promises of God are irrevocable. So God will do exactly what he has promised for Israel, but he's only going to do it for believing Israel. He won't do it for unbelieving Israel. Unbelievers are going to be purged. Does anybody remember how God purges them? What's the process? That's right, the tribulation. There are going to be seven horrible years of tribulation. And through that process, God is going to purge, refine, purify, and there was another word. I can't remember. There's four of them. And it's in uh, 
Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, he talks about that, right? So in there, he says, how many are going to die in those years? Two-thirds of those that are, those Jews who are living on the earth at that time of those seven years, two-thirds of them will die. How many will come through, refined and purified? One-third. Those one-third will have bowed their knee. And those are the ones God will take and put saved Israel back on their land. And he will fulfill his word. And why is he doing that? Because Israel's so great? Because they're so important? For the sake of his holy name, that his holy name shall be vindicated. Isn't that awesome? That's what we learned in Ezekiel. Okay, so that's exactly right. So here, let's look again at the good news. More good news to come. There's good news here, right here. This is our good news down here. All about Jesus and what he provided for us, what is done. The good news over here is th there's a voice that's calling. It's the gospel news. It's, this is the news. This is what, what we look. I'm just going to put Luke 2 in here as our reference for that good news. Now the good news is this is what Jesus did for you. Now the good news to come yet is what God is, has got ahead for us. There are two verses I want to jump ahead and look at. Uh, someone go to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1, and someone else take 11, 6. And we want to read those two verses. Because we're talking about things that are yet in the future, right? Things to come. Okay, so these are the things hoped for and things not seen. And I'm going to put not yet seen, <laughs> right? Because we're, we, are, we are hoping that they are going to happen. And what kind of hope is that? Okay, so is it a hope that's anxious and not sure and uncertain? No, thank you. So here we see it's a confident hope, right, that says uh, what we are hoping for is placed by the confidence in the good news that we believe is true. That which God promised from the beginning, he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. We are now resting in, in that sanctification knowledge, and we have a confident hope that he is going to do, bring yet more things to come for us. There's still more awesome things about this so great a salvation, right? So he says that in uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and then what does he say in 11.6? Wow. So how confident are you that one day God is going to do this? I feel sad for those people who actually think that there's not this to come. And there are people in the faith, supposedly, that think that there's not yet a, a reward to come, that we are in the kingdom now. I'm like, really? I know. I just don't understand how they get there. First of all, just by the descriptions that you line out through the word of God of what that kingdom is going to be like, we're, not, we're nowhere near to what that is. So I don't know where they get that or how they hold on to that, but there are many teachings out there in different churches that are holding on to a false hope and a false gospel and a false teaching. And so in my heart, I wonder how do they come to that? Have they diligently and in the reverential fear that they're supposed to have, have they examined the word of God to see what it really says? 
Or are they just believing some pastor that stands up front and going home every week? That's what a lot of them do. I think that is a, what a lot of them do. I just don't think they've examined it for themselves. Well, they're not thinking because the world isn't getting better. No. Well, and it's even worse than that because there's so much of what God has said is going to happen in that last time. It has not happened. It has not happened. Right? So that tells me they're not even looking to see what God's word says. Well, you know, it says, John the Baptist said, the kingdom of God is near. And he's talking about Jesus coming. And then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your heart, you know, by which we look forward to. But he also says that we are Mm -hmm. aliens Mm -hmm. in this world. So what you're doing is you're talking about that subject of the kingdom of God, though, and you're almost doing it in the same way here. The, the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification of the kingdom that is, is to come. Right, but we're partakers of yes. Christ, so we're part of that. We're part of the kingdom of God already, right. yeah. but yet right. we are looking forward to more. Right. But when it comes to a literal kingdom that he said, where he says about Israel, I'm going to put them back on their land. I am going to be their king. They are going to be my people. They are going to bring certain sacrifices. They're going to live on certain plots of land. Do you remember when we got at the end of Ezekiel and how it was plotted out, how certain uh, tribes even have certain land pieces? Do we see that yet? No. So are we in the kingdom? No. I know it's true. There you go. That's exactly right, Carol. So in other words, they're not taking seriously the word of God. Where do you think the root of that problem uh, is coming from? What starts that kind of interpretation? They don't believe. And take it another step further. You're absolutely right. They don't believe Genesis. They don't actually believe the word of God. They, they think the word of God is not, not literal. It's not actual historical record. Not only that, they think they just can Right, that it's not God breathed every word of it and truthful and and reliable and um, factual, right? And they don't interpret according to the literary styles, and so they take everything and and try to uh, make it um, imagery rather than fact. So it's dangerous if you don't handle the word of God accurately. And it's also they take it that it's all emotion. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so they're looking to the kingdom for Israel. Israel's still looking for it to be on earth, you know, earthy and stuff. So they're looking to the things that are happening right now in Israel mm-hmm. as a sign of the times. That's how they see Okay, so let's go on to the good news that we know. We know because the scripture is telling us. It actually tells us right here in, cha- in Hebrews chapter 1. What does he tell us in 1-6 about what we have not yet seen? Look in chapter 1, verse 6. What does he say? Yeah, that one day the, the firstborn is going to be again brought into the world. So it means it's a second visit. Have we had a second visit yet? Not that we, not, no, no, I have not seen it yet. And when he comes for that second visit, when he brings him again into the world, in verse 8, how, what does he describe that, that time as being? Uh-huh, and? 
Okay, so what we're, we're told then is that God is going to bring him into the world again, right? And when he comes into the world again, he's going to have a throne which will endure forever and ever. And the way that he will rule that kingdom when he returns is what? Righteousness. Okay, so those are things not yet seen. Jesus, let's put them all down. Jesus will be brought into the world again. That's in 1-6. We see when he comes, um, the angels will worship him, by the way. That's another point we, we kind of, I, I took us past that. But uh, when Jesus comes, the angels will worship. And so will we, by the way. Right? Um, him. I should put that on there. Uh, his throne, Jesus' throne, will be forever. That's in 1.8. We also see in 8 that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, um, will be ruled by his righteous scepter. And it's really cool because if you think about the kingdom of Jesus, where is that kingdom? Well, now it's in, there's a, king, a kingdom in heaven, but where is this kingdom when he returns? On earth. How much of the earth, according to Daniel? What happens to, what happens to um, the stone? The stone becomes what? A great mountain, and it fills what? The whole earth. So his kingdom will be what? what? The whole earth. Important to know. Kingdom will... Um, Jesus' kingdom will be ruled by his righteous, not mine, thankfully, by his righteous scepter. That's in 1.8. This one was cool. In 2.5, flip over to 2.5, what do we learn about the world to come? It's not subjected to angel, but it's subjected to who? To man, who will do what? That's right. I have appointed man over the works of God's hands. That's what God has said, that when he returns, his kingdom will be ruled by his righteous scepter, and man will also rule. What kind of man? Believing man, right? Those of us who are in faith. Uh, will man meaning my servants, my bride, my followers. The, in uh, Revelation, you go into Revelation um, chapter, is it 19? 19, I think, or 20. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 6, here it is. We will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. So in this reference that's given to us in Hebrews 2.7, he's speaking of Revelation 26 when that is actually inaugurated. Man will rule with Christ. And let's put on here Hebrews. That's in 2.7. And then you can go forward to Revelation 20, verse 6, to see how that lays out. And in verse 2.10, he says what? What is God doing right now? 
that we are believing by faith. Yes, he is bringing many sons to glory. That glory that's yet to come. Jesus is now bringing many sons to glory. Okay. Um, now, what Kay did in your homework was she combined the th this kingdom that I'm speaking of here, and I'm going to put a, put a signal here. Let me put. Let me just draw. That's speaking of this earthly kingdom that Jesus was rule over, correct? But yet, there's another thing to come after that, and we didn't even touch on it. I'm going to take you to one, one verse. Uh, in Hebrews, one, go back to 1, 10, and 11, because it is mentioned, but it's not elaborated on. Someone else go to Revelation 21 and 22 and tell me what you see there. You're not going to read it all. You're just going to look at those, that passage and tell me. So read uh, chapter Hebrews 1, verses 10 and 11. Who wants to read that real quick? Okay. In 11? Uh, 11. Does it say that he, that he will roll them up like a mantle? Oh, go on to 12. I'm sorry. Okay, so his kingdom, which it says that he establishes it here, and his throne will be forever, correct? So if you link that then with the statement that he makes there where he says he is going to come to this earth, he's going to establish a kingdom, his throne is going to be forever, but one day he's going to roll up this earth. And it says, and yet your kingdom never comes to an end. So what does that tell you about the kingdom that comes on it during the thousand-year reign? It goes on into the future, correct? It does not cease. Just because there's a time called the millennial reign where we enter into God's glory, the rest that we were promised the glory of God. That kingdom, that rest goes on into eternity. So that's where we see it in Revelation 21 and 22. Who has that one in their mind? What's, on, what's going on in Revelation 21 and 22? What has passed away and what is coming? That's right. The, the, oh, the he, this present heaven and earth is going to pass away and the new heaven and the new earth is going to come. God brings it down out of heaven and it's prepared as a bride for his bridegroom. And you and I go to live and to dwell with there for how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the world to come. It includes the millennial reign and it includes the kingdom, the, the eternal heaven and earth where there's no more tears and no more sorrow. And he'll be with us when we get into the new heaven, new earth. Well, here we have Jesus physically ruling and reigning on the earth, and that's the dis there. You're just bringing up a whole other subject, girl. Yes. Okay, so here, then we go to new heaven and new earth. <laughs> I know. I think I hooked you badly. Okay, let's go. That's Revelation 21 and 22. We go to the new heaven and the new earth. He says that he will roll up this, uh, this earth as a mantle, but he, yet he, will, he rules forever, it says. 
His kingdom goes on forever. It shall not come to an end, and your years will not, and your years will not come to an end. All right. Yay. Sure. Well, it's, it, yes, because certainly by then now, all, all evil is purged. We're doing the, the millennial reign. There's, we're still dealing with sinful man. Right. Yes. 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 But what I'm, and so what I want you guys to understand, though, here is that when, he, when he's talking on this subject in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, which is what we just finished, what you're seeing is he's introducing the subject of rest. That rest can be broken down into three points. That is the three verb tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And if you look carefully in everything that we've read so far, all three of those are being touched on, right? So you have to discern each point and lay it in its proper place. That's right. It's done once, and we're going to really nail that down when we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, with that, this, the sacrifices once for all. That's why that purification for sins is such good news.